Hello and welcome to the Talk Spot. I'm Tim Scott. And I'm Peter Stockham. And welcome back for the fourth season of the Talk Spot. We're back. And actually, we're back with a difference this season. Very excited to announce a collaboration with the International Association of Forensic Toxicologists now. So now we're working with TF, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about TF. I don't know. We already talk a fair bit about TF, don't we? Well, we both are TF members, have been for quite a number of years. And when we started this podcast, our aim was to promote conversation within the field of forensic toxicology. That's what we've been trying to do for the last three seasons, and that's what we're going to continue to try to do. And that lines up very well with the aims of TF, which is exactly the same thing, to talking promote about, collaboration, conversation. Talking about tox. Yep. It's an exciting collaboration. I think it's a perfect fit, Pete. But we're generally going to keep to the same format, so you won't notice that much of a change, I don't think, and maybe promote a little bit more about what TF's on about. And it also might give us a chance to introduce some guest hosts and some other people who may be able to help us out from time to time. And if you're not familiar with TF, uh, go and check out their website, tf.org. You can find out a lot of information about them. They run conferences and they have a lot of resources available for forensic toxicologists. Full access to the Journal of Analytical Toxicology and get to access all the previous bulletins through the website. Well, it's been a long time since our last season, Pete. We were planning to do another season at the end of last year to coincide with the TF conference in South Africa, which unfortunately didn't go ahead like a lot of other conferences last year. And of course, COVID had a huge impact last year and still continues to have a huge impact. I'm sure people are sick of talking about it. But one thing that it has raised awareness of is the potential for false positive and false negative results just among the general public. Lots of COVID tests happening. And sometimes you'll hear in the media someone tested positive and then later negative or negative and then later positive. Or a weak positive and that was negative. So how can you have a weak positive? Isn't that positive or negative? Yeah, so I think awareness has been raised about the potential for wrong results in scientific testing. No scientific test is perfect. So we thought we'd have a look and see how that applies to toxicology and false negatives. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about false positives perhaps in our episode on drug identification, or at least that's one aspect of false positives. So today we're going to focus on false negatives. What's the potential for these things happening in toxicological testing and what are some ways that we can minimise the risks? Sometimes we have to accept that they're going to happen. and Sometimes we, they're less acceptable. And that's sort of a thing that we're often doing in the background without us consciously thinking of it. When you're setting up a method, let's say you're designing a new analytical method, we make a lot of decisions during that method setup and validation process based on the level of risk that we're prepared to accept in terms of false negatives. We don't always think about it in terms of the risk but we, we should, I think. I mean, often when people are validating methods, they're talking about it in terms of whether they've ticked certain boxes and they've you know, assessed certain criteria, which is good and you should do that. But really, what's at the core of that is trying to assess the risk that something's going to go wrong and it's going to give you a wrong result. Are we talking mainly qualitative analysis here, Tim, or are you talking about quantitative as well? I'm thinking more of qualitative analysis. I mean, we haven't really defined what a false negative is, but I would view it as when the true result in the sample, which you never know, of course, the true result should give you a positive result for a particular analyte, but it doesn't for some reason. That's what I would regard as a false negative. Yeah, it sounds reasonable. So your, your method 
should be able to detect it, but you've missed it. Yeah. And you might never know that you've missed it. No. A simple example might be that you have a retention time window for an analyte, and if something goes wrong in a particular run during your method, the retention time might shift a bit. So you have a, a safeguard within your method so that you can monitor that, so like the retention time of an internal standard or another similar measure like monitoring the pressure throughout the run. Yeah, this is what risk management is about. In any field, risk management is about assessing a risk, putting in some controls in place to minimize that risk, and then assessing it again once you have those controls in place. Maybe it's fine and great. You go ahead with your method. If you still think the risk is too high, then you put some more controls in place. And so these are the kind of things that we do during method validation. And we're going to get into some specifics here. We're just talking about it in broad terms at the moment. But often when you're implementing those controls, they all come at an expense. It's either money or it's time. And so you've got to find that balance where you're comfortable, what kind, what level of risk you're comfortable with and how much you can afford in terms of money and time. And this might be different for different methods, different working in different fields, even different analytes within your method might be different. So either subconsciously or deliberately you're putting into place some sort of risk management. That's it. So you might think... I've got a retention time of an internal standard. And I know it behaves pretty similar to this other drug, so it should be okay. But there is a risk it might not behave exactly the same. But through your validation, you look at that and you can hopefully be assured that it's going to be okay. Yeah, well, let's get into some details because it's easier to talk about when you're actually talking about specific examples. So in most methods, there is an extraction process. You're extracting it out of whatever sample it's in into some kind of solvent and then you're putting it on your instrument. So if you've got a method that has, let's say, 50 drugs in it, that's pretty common these days, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, that. 50 drugs is quite a few. Then not all of those drugs are going to extract exactly the same. Some will work really well. Some will work not quite as well. I mean, we're presuming that they're all going to be acceptable to whatever criteria you're assessing them against. But it's always a compromise, isn't it? So you're going to have to just deal with some drugs don't work quite as well as others. And they're the ones that you're going to have to watch out for, probably. Because if, say, if you had a bad recovery or a dodgy sample in terms of its homogeneity or its or its putrefaction. But in validation, it had a CV of 19.5%, negative 19.5% its recovery. So which passed your, your 20% guideline, is that right? Yeah, that's if you what your guideline is. But. So, okay, what controls can we put in place for this? Well... Internal standards, obviously. You need internal standards. It's very important. But how many internal standards should you have? What kind of internal standards should you have? I mean, Everyone deuterated. Yeah. That would be the ideal situation. That would be the ideal situation. And when I win the lottery, that's what we'll be doing in our lab. I won't be doing that in the lab. <laughs> You'll be retiring, will you? Yep. Well, you're not as committed as I am, obviously. Obviously. But let's say you've got this method with 50 drugs in it. You know, you're not going to have deuterated internal standards for all of those. You're going to, maybe your boss comes along and says, look, we can afford five internal standards for this method. So you've got to pick five. Mm -hmm. And maybe all these 50 drugs are different classes. So you're going to pick some that are, you know, a bit generic and hopefully mirror quite a few of the main classes. But you're going to have some which just aren't mirrored very well by the internal standard in terms of their recovery, their extraction efficiency. So this is just a fact of life. This is put in front of you. You have to do it. But you've got to make an assumption here. I guess that's the point. You've got to make an assumption that your analytes are behaving the same as your internal standards, even though you know that 
maybe all of them aren't behaving exactly the same way and some of them aren't necessarily the same class. They've got a bit of a different chemistry. Maybe you're trying to choose an internal standard that's the same in terms of some blunt measure like PKA or retention time, something like that. But if the structure is quite different, then it could behave quite differently in a less than ideal situation. You see a lot of methods which are published and they have widely varying ratios of analyte to internal standards. Some of them might have one internal standard per 10 analytes or one per 50 or one per 100. But it depends. Maybe it is okay in some methods. It depends on the level of risk that you're prepared to accept and that depends on what you're trying to do. And you might have a particular compound. Let's say you've got 50 drugs in this method we're developing here, 50 drugs and five internal standards, but you've got one drug in there, one analyte, which just it, it behaves badly for some reason. You're talking about alanzapine. I'm, I didn't want to name and shame alanzapine, but sure. And so you might need a deuterated internal standard just for that one particular drug to monitor that one. Otherwise, you know, if you don't include that, you're not really monitoring it very well. You could get all your internal standards recovering. And here's where it comes to the risk in the actual operation of the method. You could get all your internal standards passing, recovering quite well, but your analyte doesn't. And you don't know. You would never know. Yeah, that sounds dangerous. But it's not really that dangerous, is it? I mean, we, we're all good chemists and we take care of this risk somehow. Well, I guess one thing to say about this risk is that it's not a binary risk. It's not like you'll either detect it or you won't because it's concentration dependent. If the concentration of a drug is high enough, even if it's got a bit of a poor recovery in a particular sample, let's say a putrefactive sample, you'll still see it because it's just got a really high concentration. Maybe you're only recovering 10% of it, but you'll still see it. Yeah. But it's those drugs where it's those drugs where you're only just achieving the LOD that you need to achieve to be able to report it. Like like let's say you've got a method for drug facilitated crime and you're using the soft guidelines for cutoffs for different drugs and drug facilitated crime. Some of those are quite low. And so you develop a method and you can achieve those levels, but maybe some of them you're only just achieving them. You On know. the border. Yeah. So mm-hmm. in your validation, sure, ticks all the boxes. But in real life, when a bit of a messy sample comes along, it's not going to behave the same way it did in validation. Maybe your internal standards aren't going to mirror the recovery of all the drugs that well. And so you, maybe your LOD is not going to be the same as what it normally should be in that particular sample. And so how do we deal with that, Tim? Well, I think with some of these things, it's just being aware is the first step. If you're aware of these things, you can do proper testing in your validation and you can do continual validation of one kind or another to continually assess your method and see whether it's working well enough or not. That all sort of supposed to come underneath your ruggedness assessment, isn't it? So you gradually add information to your validation to show how it's working. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we've done the extraction part, so maybe we should talk a bit about instruments. Yeah. How they can affect it. There's definitely quite a few points in your analysis on the instrument where you can get a false negative for a bunch of reasons. So let's say you're using a GCMS. Yep. You're probably screening against a library and you're using the library score perhaps to filter out results. You've got to set it reasonably high or else you're not really filtering out anything. It's not much use then. But if you set it too high then that's when you're going to miss something where you've got an interference there and so the algorithm just you know says it's not a match. So the, the, analyte, the threshold. Your analyte could be there, but 
because of your local mass spec confirmation guidelines, you can't report it perhaps. Is that a false negative? Is that what we'd call a false negative? Well, I'm thinking of you might even have your report set up to only show you the positives. Uh, you don't want to see every negative peak. That's, yeah. that's nothing. So you might not even ever see that peak. It just filters it out automatically because it's not a good library fit. And even if it isn't a good library fit, I reckon most MS guidelines say something about an experienced scientist or worse to that effect should be reviewing the data. Yeah, but what data? There is no data yeah. because it's already filtered it out. But that's the, the way to mitigate that would be to try and look at as many peaks as possible. But you're saying that you can't look at every peak, but maybe some people can. Okay, well, yeah. So this is when you've got to decide how much time and you know effort you're willing to put into minimising this risk. Sure, you can step through the chromatogram and look at everything and then you, you can almost eliminate the risk hmm. by doing that. Yeah, or you can adjust the library scores, you know, and you can put up with a little bit more junk coming through that's not really, you know, a true analyte so that you don't miss anything. It's a balance. In this case, you're talking about a full scan spectrum sort of scanning method. Yeah, We're not yeah. looking at a distinct bunch of compounds, I guess. No, but it, all right. So let's say if you were doing a SIM method on a GC or an LC triple quad method, same basic thing, then your the way you assess a positive is by transition ratios. So if you have an interference in one of those transitions, that could lead to a false negative potentially. If it's far enough out, if it throws it far enough out that the software doesn't even recognize it as a match, maybe, you know, depending on, depends how your software report settings are set up and things like that, whether you'll actually see it or not. If your software settings are set up so that you'll, you're going to see every target peak and then it will tell you whether it's a match or not based on the qualifiers. If you see every one of those, you, then you're probably not going to miss anything. But to save time, because this is the thing, labs are under pressure. You've got to save time. You've got to do analyses faster. How do you do that? Stop looking at so much junk. That's really mm. the best way to improve your efficiency. But that comes at a cost. It comes at a risk of potential false negatives because you filter out those ones that are clearly not a match. And most of the time, they it's because they're not the analyte. But occasionally, it could be because there's an interference there and you won't see it. So your, your ratios are out or even the integration function doesn't work properly because the peak's such a funny shape. Maybe it's a huge overload or something like that. So it's not necessarily sure. just low concentrations. It could be high concentrations if yeah. you haven't looked at that closely in your software settings. I mean, they're, well, they're the scariest ones, aren't they? I mean, you can almost accept if you miss a low concentration of something, okay, you know, big deal to some extent. Like you've missed something that's – your LOD is supposedly lower than that, but it's not much different and okay – you missed it. But you, if you miss a high concentration of something, that's when you're very concerned about that. Depends a little bit on the... When you're talking about whether it's a low concentration you missed in a drug-facilitated assault, for example, you'd be worried about that. But in PM tox, you may not be so concerned. Yeah, depends on the application yeah, for sure. Yeah. Some people may be thinking, what are you guys talking about? You've got a quantitative method that screens as well. You're always going to be able to see your lowest calibrator and that's your cutoff. Yeah, I still think I still think the risk is there because it's not your sample is different to your calibration matrix. So, yes, your lowest calibrator behaves itself and the transitions are, you know, pretty good and whatnot. But in a particular sample in that batch, you've got interferences, and so the software is saying it's not positive. Now, whether you see that or not and you're able to say, "Oh, okay, yeah, I can see what's happening there. There's an interference." That all depends on how your software and report settings 
are set up. You might be setting it up to filter out those things. The samples that you did the validation on might have been quite clean because a lot of labs find it hard to get hold of authentic, say, post-mortem specimens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what about um, matrix effects? You know, you assess matrix effects in validation and maybe you assess them all in your pristine validation matrix and uh, you don't have a lot of matrix effects, but you come to do actual samples and some of those samples are going to have large matrix effects, either from the matrix itself or from other drugs that are present in that matrix, which weren't in your validation samples, they can suppress analytes too. So if it suppresses your analyte enough, it'll suppress it below the LOD and you'll get a false negative. You wouldn't even think to... So if you're looking for amphetamines, for example, you wouldn't think to see that uh, would a 10 nanogram per mil level of amphetamine be swamped by a 2,000 mg per litre paracetamol that coalutes. If you've got an internal standard that mimics your analyte, then it's not so bad. But No, that, I guess that's how you minimise that risk. If you're looking at MRMs of a particular compound, it's a huge concentration. Say the peak might, instead of being six seconds wide, is now 25 seconds wide. Will that get integrated? It depends on how... You've got to make sure that that's been done, right? Otherwise, you're going to possibly miss a huge peak, and the qualifiers are just not going to pass. Yeah, I mean, most modern softwares are pretty good at integration, but there's always funny things that happen. You get a weird-shaped peak, and it just can't recognize it for some reason. The slope's too high or too low or something, and it just doesn't integrate it properly. It's not just um, triple quads I'm talking about here. I mean, uh, TOFs are probably even more susceptible to that sort of problem because they rely on, usually when you're looking at the data, you're relying on the mass accuracy. And if you get a huge peak, then that's going to change your mass accuracy on many instruments anyway. What I never used to think about was the extraction iron chromatogram width the retention time window, are you talking about? Or? No, I'm talking about the actual extracted iron chromatogram width, the mass width. Oh, okay. So you, you extract a particular mass. Yeah, but it's always plus or minus a certain amount. So mm -hmm. so when you're using a single quad GCMS, it's always plus or minus 0.5 or 0.4 mass units. And it's, that's usually pretty good because the mass peak is usually much wider than that anyway. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about TOF, to get good selectivity, you narrow that tolerance so that you get a nice clean chromatogram. But if you narrow it too much and you get a high concentration peak, then you might just have that peak disappear. Or it'll come out as a funny shape. So you might catch the beginning of it and catch the end of it. And your integration software might say, oh, I don't recognize that as a peak. It's negative. Yeah, that's a particularly nasty problem because that risk is concentration dependent, but it's the higher concentrations that have the greater risk yeah. of not seeing that compound. In the early days of TOFs, you often saw them talk about, uh, and these were instruments which weren't that high in resolution, using two or three part per million extraction iron chromatogram tolerance. And that's when you're actually in the lab trying to do that, sometimes your compounds disappear. And when we were starting out, we're going, what's going on here? And then we finally realized, ah, oh, it's not that easy. Well, of course, on a QTOF, you've got different types of acquisition settings, yeah. right? You've got... Now, we've talked about all these acronyms before. Let's call them data-dependent analysis and data-independent analysis. Right. So both of these techniques have the risk of false negatives, but actually the risks are at different points because of the ways these different acquisition techniques work. So with data-dependent analysis, you're maintaining the link between the molecular ion and the fragment ions. Yep. You've always got that link. 
But with data-independent analysis, you're taking everything in and fragmenting all of it. And so you're severing that link. You no longer know which fragments belong to which molecular ion. It could be a co-alluding internal standard even. Yeah, or a mm. co-alluding uh, analyte or a co-alluding matrix peak. Metabolite with similar ions. Yeah, and so that messes up the MSMS enough so that cutoff threshold you've got there, which you've set in your reporting, but it's kind of filtering it out. So for data independent acquisition, where you're collecting a broad band, I mean, it depends on the width of that band. So some mass spectrometers can have a quite a narrow band, can't they? So that sort yeah, of you, alleviates that a bit. Yes. So if you're doing something like SWATH, you're going to reduce the risk, but you're not getting rid of the risk altogether. Mm. You're just minimizing it a bit. So that's a good thing. You're minimizing it by having a narrower window there. You're only taking in certain molecular ions. So that mitigates it to some extent, doesn't it? It does. Mm. And what else can you do to mitigate that particular risk? You can assess the acquisition settings under lots of different parameters in your validation. It's that ruggedness that you're talking about before, Pete. Assess it in the presence of other analytes, in different matrices, in real samples, because sometimes these interferences could be metabolites. But the main problem with data-dependent analysis is that you might not acquire MSMS at all. Depends on the way that you set your method up, but you have to have a precursor selection process. And that might mean you may miss a small peak if it's there. Because data-dependent analysis only fragments the, the top few ions in any particular time point or your preferred ions. If you've got them in a preferred list, it'll, it'll do them first before the highest ones. By a preferred list, you mean uh, like a list of drugs that you want the mass spec to always look for if it sees a precursor. But it's definitely not doing all... Not, not fragmenting all the ions. No. And that's the point. And so if you've got a lot coming out at one particular time point, maybe you've got a few things that are in your preferred list already, but then you've got another one that's a bit smaller, even if it's in your preferred list, it may not acquire MSMS. And so if your software settings, report settings, are set up to just find those ones which are an MSMS match, you're going to miss that one. Yeah, another way you can trip up. One way to mitigate that risk is to monitor everything at an MS level so that you see all those initial peaks and then you're getting the MSMS and you're comparing it to the library and stuff. But that's quite a time-consuming way to do it. You can do it that way, but it's much faster to be sifting, to let the software sift them by MSMS match. Yeah, of course. I mean, especially if you've got a few hundred compounds to look at. There's a limit to how many compounds you can have in a preferred list. If you have 800 analytes in your preferred list, they stop being preferred, really, don't they? You, I mean, you just start to have every mass in there almost. It seems to work okay with 500, for example, but if you go up to, say, you're saying 2,000. Does it work okay at 500? I don't know. It's, I think it does. Well, yeah, it works okay. All right, let's mm -hmm. define okay. It works okay, but have you eliminated the risk that it's going to miss one of those? Definitely not, if you've got 500 on there. And it depends as well what the settings are for those irons, like how... How wide are you setting the window around that iron? You, you put in a preferred iron of 316.023. What's your window around that? Because that's going to pick up other things as well if your window's too wide. And if your retention time window as well around that mass is reasonably wide. I mean, you want it to be a bit wide because you, you, you're not always going to get exactly the same retention time. But if you set that window too wide, that's also going to pick up other things. And again, this is it just all comes back to balance when you're setting up these kind of settings in your method 
you've got to have a balance. You've got to have it wide enough to make sure you're going to get your compound picking up, but you've got to set it narrow enough that it's not going to pick up too much else. And where you sit on that spectrum will decide the risk of a false negative result. Some people might be more comfortable with a little more risk. Some people might not be comfortable with any risk, in which case you're going to do things in the most time-consuming way possible, I expect. But it would take a longer time. Probably not the most time-consuming way possible, but okay. a longer time. Okay. Maybe. I mean, yeah, all right. Let's think about how we used to do things and run them on <laughs> six different instruments and stuff. But definitely it won't be the most efficient. And I feel like lots of laboratories these days are being pressured more and more into doing things faster and faster. And can you do it faster? Yes, we can do it faster, but there's a greater risk to accept if you do it that way. And sometimes, you know, the bean counters don't understand what that risk is. You know, well, you're doing science or you're doing a scientific test, right? So you're going to get the right result. Well, yeah, but maybe sometimes no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain that to someone who's not in the same game, isn't it? It is. And I think as scientists, you know, we take pride in making sure we get the right result for a particular test, but we know that it's not a right or wrong result necessarily. There's degrees of rightness to a result, trueness. Yeah. But this but I guess this is the one of the major points, false negatives, where you really are either saying it's there or you're saying it's not there. Mm. So that is quite a black and white thing, unlike, you know, quantitative level. What about immunoassay techniques then? I mean, they've surely got to have a higher probability of false negatives. But one way you can demonstrate that your method's valid is, is to also analyse your samples, your negative samples in your validation phase to see if you've missed any true positives. Because in this case, you can tell whether sample's truly positive or not, can't you? Because it's, it's not your confirmation step. Well, the validation guidelines do say with ELISA that you have a false negative rate and a false positive rate, and you work out your sensitivity from that rate. Yeah, and actually that's a good point because different tests have a different level of acceptability of false negatives. Well, in that, with immunoassay, then you have a, a more clear risk assessment because you have to get a, a false negative rate, a false positive rate, true positive, true negative rate, and from that you work out your sensitivity. So then you can say, so what the rate of false negatives is, is that acceptable or is it the risk you're willing to take? So there it's quite a visible assessment of what you're willing to accept as a laboratory. And I think that's possible because in the case of immunoassay tests, there's usually or there's always a confirmatory test that happens afterwards. So you can actually get a reliable uh, assessment of whether a sample is truly positive or truly negative. Yeah, and again, it all comes down to, as we often say on this podcast, your method's got to be fit for purpose. So in an immunoassay test, you know, a higher false negative rate is maybe fit for purpose, depending on the application. All depends on the application, doesn't it? I mean, immunoassay is usually used where there's a very high throughput of samples, isn't it? Because it's very quick. Mm. And I think confirmatory methods, LCMS, are always going to be a little bit slower and more expensive, probably. So let's just sum up a bit here. When you're assessing risk in developing a method or using a method, it's imagine a chart where you've got likelihood of an event happening on one axis and the significance of if that event happens on the other axis. Right. You know, some of those you don't have to worry about. If they're very unlikely or if they're very unimportant, who really cares about those risks? But it's the ones where they're more likely to happen and more significant when they do happen that you have to really worry about. But here's the problem. How do you measure how likely 
some of these things are to happen. Because in your validation, you're not doing enough experiments really mm. to show it. it. It's more unlikely than that. You, you might run a thousand injections in your val- over the course of your validation. It might be less likely than one in a thousand. Yeah, so highly infrequent, but highly probable it's going to happen over a year. That's it. Mm. We haven't really come up with many solutions, though, have we, Tim? I hope people weren't expecting solutions. <laughs> Not if they've listened to yeah, us just... before, they probably they wouldn't expect solutions. Look, as we said at the start of this episode, our, our aim in this podcast is to promote conversation in the field. So mm. these are the kind of things that we should be having conversations about, I think. It's, it's not that Peter and I have all the solutions to it, but we should be talking about this. I mean, there's no good sticking our head in the sand and pretending that yeah. everything's fine when it comes to this stuff because we know there's risks. Just tick the validation boxes, Tim. It's fine. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that is fine. As far as, And this is the thing. These are things that we understand as scientists – the public, our clients, they don't know any of this stuff and they don't want to know any of this stuff and they don't really care about it, right? They they expect the result we put out is the right result and for the most part, they're not questioning it that much. I guess they'd know that no process is perfect, but they'd expect the people who are constructing that method to have least possible chance of an error happening. And, and we so do that, yeah. We do do it. and We don't want to get an overemphasis of false negatives happen all the time. They probably don't. No, they probably don't because I think it, it really is that perfect storm. You know, it's when you get in a method a retention time shift and a mass shift or and you've got isotope interferences or you've got another compound co-eluding which is suppressing your analyte. You know, you've probably got to have multiple of these things happening at once for this kind of thing to happen and that doesn't happen all the time. No. But it does happen sometimes. Yeah, infrequently but probable. Yeah. yeah. But the significance of these things can be really high. You know, in a particular case, if you miss a compound that was really there, that can have huge implications mm. for a lot of people down the track, depending on the kind of work you're doing. If you think about the validation guidelines that you're following when you're developing a method, they're, they are based on risk management. But the thing is, not all risks are assessed in guidelines. So we've got to be thinking about this constantly, not just in validating our methods, but in using our methods as well. Don't what are the potential risks? Are we accounting properly for those potential risks? Maybe some risks which weren't there during the validation crop up later down the track because of changes to various things, changes to your instrument sensitivity, changes to an extraction solvent. You were getting your acetonitrile from one supplier. Now you've switched over because someone made a decision to get a cheaper solvent from somewhere. And now you've got other interferences. So these things change over the life of a method. You've got to be constantly aware that the purpose of validation is to assess these risks and it doesn't just stop when you've finished validating your method. It may even be totally out of your control. It may be the buffer, for example, the oral fluids collected in now that could be changed and you're not being told about it. Or the water that's coming out of your water purifier. But we don't want to overblow it. It's a fairly small chance, I would think. Of course. If you're a responsible analyst, you're always thinking about this sort of thing. So look, let us know what you think. about. Hey, we've got a new email address now, Pete. Do we know what it is? Yeah, now that we're uh, associated with TFT, we have a TFT email address. If you want to contact us, email toxpod at tf.org. Let us know what you think about the risks of these kind of things. And solutions. If you've got some solutions, it'll be great. So, look, plenty more episodes coming uh, for this season. Thanks for listening. And see you next time.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting, taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.